With sports car racing news and analysis from around the globe, this is the Double Stint Podcast. Here's John DeGeese, Ryan Marine, and Dan Lloyd. Hello, everyone. Welcome into Double Stint Sports Car 365 Sports Car Racing Podcast in Indianapolis. I'm Ryan Marine, and joined this week by John DeGeese in Chicago, as well as our Dan Lloyd in the UK. So a whole lot to cover, both racing here in the States as well as in Europe. So we've got the two guys who were covering it for you on the program, and we'll be talking about uh, what, what we had over the weekend. IMSA racing at Michelin Raceway Road, Atlanta. We had GT World Challenge Europe powered by AWS, the Endurance Cup racing at the Nürburgring, and we'll be talking about both of those topics, plus other racing from over the weekend, a whole lot of news from this past week to get to as well, and we'll look ahead at the week to come, not just in racing, but we expect some big news this weekend as far as the future of IMSA uh, perhaps coming this week, so more on that here shortly. First, though, we'll start with Michelin Raceway Road Atlanta and the WeatherTech Championship specifically, John, where we saw... Elio Castroneves and Ricky Taylor team up for a win for Acura Team Penske. I know coming into the weekend, we had a story talking about the need for this program to check the the one final box, which was a long-distance race win, and they were able to do so. Good thing it was a long-distance race as well, because it did not get off to a good start, specifically with a couple of penalties for Elio. Yeah, the car was nearly two laps down by the opening hour. Um, First, it was a, a pit lane speeding infraction on pit in, um, Helio admitted post-race that he was in second gear, and I guess the pit speed limiter doesn't engage on the Acura when it's in second gear, so he admitted fault there. But then, as he was trying to explain to the crew that he had he made the mistake, he missed the pit exit light that was red, and so he went through the pit exit that was closed and got a even hefty penal heftier pen, penalty there. I think it was a, a stop plus 60 seconds. So. Um, all of a sudden, the pole-sitting car, which looked pretty well in control in the early stages of the race, was almost two laps down. Um, they clawed their way back, um, thanks to uh, some full-course cautions, a wave by, also um, just some great driving by the, the two two drivers, and um, got back in, into contention. And then, like, the rest of the race was kind of like everybody had penalties or incidents one way or another. I don't remember such a crazy race, especially in DPI, um, between the accidents. um, um, First off, at the beginning of the race, Dane Cameron getting um, spun around after contact from Felipe Nasser. That resulted in a penalty for the 31 car. Um, The six car later went was in contention for the win until um, a, a crazy pit lane incident with Montoya and Ryan Briscoe, where um, the Wayne's Taylor camp alleges that uh, Montoya brake checked Briscoe. There's some argument there to be made both ways. In the end, Briscoe got a penalty. Um, then Montoya ended up crashing out after uh, Tony Vlander uh, went off course in the S's and clipped him. Um, we also had the Action Express car get another penalty. I'm losing track here already. It was just, <laughs> it was just a crazy, it's a crazy race. And considering it was six hours. Um, it didn't really feel like an endurance race. There was action almost nonstop. And um, in the end, it was their second 
win in a row for Castro Nevis and Taylor. Um, first major endurance win, like you said, Ryan, for the program for Accurate Team Penske. So um, great stuff up front. But um, yeah, a lot of things sort of fell into place in the, la- in the last hour. And I, I think it made for a very entertaining race in, in DPI. And in so doing, Taylor and Castro Nevis became the first repeat winners in the DPI class here in 2020. What a topsy-turvy year it has been where we get this far into the season before we've had a repeat winner so congratulations to them for that Uh, you mentioned the spin at the start and that maybe set the tone for how this race was going to play out like you said it was crazy from start to finish it seemed like there were four or five different chapters of this race where various cars came to the fore and then faded for various reasons, and we haven't even got to the Mazdas yet, which it appeared there it might be a Mazda win in the offing, especially with the number 77 car, only to have brake problems hit that car and derail their effort. Yeah, they had an overnight engine change, and with no warm-up um, anymore in IMSA, at least in some most of these races, they didn't have any chance to actually verify their car was all good to go, but um, they had a lot of speed. I was extremely impressed by Tristan Nunez in, in the 77. He led the race for quite a bit. Um, all of a sudden, though, I think it was 90 minutes to go or about an hour 40 to go when the car pitted. And um, we first really didn't know what it was um, as they looked at the front and rear of the Multimatic build car. And ultimately, it was brake problems. Um, so that took them out of the equation. But the 55 car was still strong, um, didn't really have any major issues through the race. Um, Harry Tinknell um, ended up uh, closing in on, on Ricky Taylor in the closing stages of the race, but um, got a good solid second place finish there. Um, so that, that was great stuff for them. And also the, the Wheel and Engineering Action Express car rebounded to finish third, thanks to a late charge from Felipe Nasser after that penalty um, from Pipo Durrani. That was another incident I forgot. I remember the Action Express car had two penalties. So the second one was from Durrani hitting um, um, the Magnus uh, Lamborghini in the S's, making the two cars colliding there and taking the Magnus Lamborghini out of the race. And that brought out the, the race's second to last caution, I think around the four hour mark. So, um, yeah, just lots of lots of drama. And we will continue to have drama when we look at the championship because the top three in points separated by just five points leaving Road Atlanta. So that should be a fantastic battle the rest of the way with. More endurance racing still to come on the calendar. Let's uh, switch our attention to the GT Le Mans class here, John, where finally Corvette's winning streak comes to a close, and it was BMW that was able to knock them off their perch. Yeah, a bit of a surprise there with BMW because I thought, I think everybody sort of assumed it was a matter of time until Porsche gets into victory lane, yet both of their cars had problems throughout the race. Um, it was not equally as crazy as DPI, but GTLM still did have some some dramatic moments as well. But this was um, victory for Connor Felipe and Bruno Spengler. Uh, Spengler picking up his first win in WeatherTech Championship can, uh, competition in real life, we could say. Uh, he had multiple wins in the iRacing Pro Series, and it was actually the iRacing Pro Series champion there. But um, this was a long time coming for Bruno. Um, especially, you know, coming so close in a couple races earlier this year. So, um, yeah, um, big stuff for BMW, their second win of the season. Um, it came after a bit of a strate- strategic uh, role in the, in the final round of pit stops. The number 911 Porsche had been leading for a good chunk of the race um, with Nick Tandy at the wheel, and um, they 
they pitted, um, came out ultimately in third after the outlap. Um, the number four Corvette got around them as well. And there was a pretty big scrap there on the outlap. And, and Connor described it as, you know, just giving it his all and trying to do what he could to get into the lead because he knew that was his chance. And um, that's what happened. And and ultimately, the, the Porsche faded to fourth in the end, the number 911 car, um, struggling in the cooler conditions on its tire choice there. Um, the 912 Porsche had another race to forget, first with a drive-through penalty for Lawrence Fanther for drive, driving over pit equipment in its first stop. Then they had brake issues right around halfway, ended up changing the brakes um, on the front and rear. And then they got another penalty for too many um, people over the wall, ended up finishing last in class. And it was another disappointing run for them. The, certainly looks like they're not going to be able to defend their championship um, with Larry and, and Earl there. But um, like you said, Ryan, it was still a lot of action in GTLM and, and um, good to see BMW Team RLL back in victory lane. What do you make of the race from the Corvette point of view? The number four car ends up recovering from a puncture to get a good result while the number three car wasn't quite so lucky with its own tire problems. Yeah, it was weird seeing some cars in the race have tire problems. We saw it in a couple other classes, too. It wasn't like the entire field. It was just tied down to a couple cars, and it was sort of the same case in Sunday's Michelin Pilot Challenge race as well. Um, strange situations. Usually this never, this kind of thing never happens, but um, then again, you know, I don't think a lot of people expected to be racing in really warm conditions at Road Atlanta in, in early September. So um, nonetheless... You, as you mentioned, the number four car lost some ground early with the puncture. Then the number, number three also had a puncture late in the running um, that derailed their effort. So um, disappointing run for Corvette, but they're still leading the championship. I think that's the most important thing. And with so many wins racked up so early in the season, it's hard to sort of knock them down unless they end up with a bunch of fifth and sixth place finishes from here. So um, all they need to do is really get podiums and, and second place finishes podiums. That's the kind of results that they need to really just carry things in, in for the rest of the year. So, um, you know, and, and like we saw in the last couple races, the wins were just kind of handed to them. Um, th thanks to some late, late, late race dramas this time, it didn't work out that way with the BMW actually um, showing some pace and showing speed and, and not having any issues. So um, I'm not too surprised by the performance from the Corvettes over the weekend, but I was surprised by the punctures, that's for sure. Moving on to the GT Daytona class, it appeared that Paul Miller Racing might have had the measure of the field, led a lot of the race, but problems late in the race relegated them to second, and that opened the door for Meyer Schenk Racing, the number 86 Acura, Mario Farnbacher, also, Matt McMurray and Shinya Mishimi teaming to take the win there. And it led to a, a pretty remarkable result when you consider it from the Acura standpoint, John. Uh, the first time that they've picked up wins in both classes in which they compete on a single race weekend. Yeah, I had to double check this, actually, because I thought it might have already happened, but it didn't. Um, this was the first time that the NSX GT3 and the ARX05 won on the, in the same race. And uh, it's been a long time coming, two and a half years um, since the introduction of the DPI program. And um, to get this, especially in uh, a Michelin Endurance Cup race, was big for Acura. It was a, a huge achievement for the brand and, and everybody involved. And especially, I think, for Mario Farnbacher, because he came so close the last couple races to victory. 
um, in with the 86 car. You look back at Road America where he had that real great duel with Townsend Bell at the end, ended up spinning in the, in the kink as the kink got flooded. Then the next race battling with Bill Oberlin for the lead and break, um, out breaking into turn one and getting a little off course there and, and ultimately not having the pace to catch back up in the closing stages. Um, third time's the charm for for the German, and uh, he brought the 86 home for, for the win. But definitely, and he even credited it, he said it all really came down to the Meyerschenk Racing pit crew. Um, they had some really good stops, and at the same time, the Paul Miller guys struggled a bit in the pits, um, most notably with the fuel fill of their Lamborghini. And um, what I did some digging post-race to try to figure out what was actually the reason, because we were thinking initially that there were had problems during their stop because their stops were so much slower than everybody else. But what happened was that the fuel flow might have not been as quick as it could have been with the restrictor on that Lamborghini. Um, you have to take a look back to the VIR race for the 48 guard. Um, they ended up getting um, excluded. Well, they were brought to the back of the field. They lost their podium finish because they had too much uh, too uh, much fuel capacity on board their car. And it seemed like the Paul Miller guys were taking things a little more conservatively this time. I, I spoke to Brian Sellers post-race and he said, yeah, that's kind of what it was. It wasn't anybody's mistake. Nobody did, did anything wrong, but we kind of misjudged the, 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 the fueling time. Um, GT Daytona cars are required for a minimum 40 seconds of refueling, and they're allowed to use whatever whatever refueling restrictor they'd like as long as they get, have it to that full fuel load of 40 seconds. And um, it seems that Paul Miller may have had that may have been off by a little bit there. Um, no penalties. They didn't do anything wrong. They were just being a little more conservative than the rest of the competitors. And that kind of comes down to just experience and more races on the season. And this was the team's only third start of the year. So um, unfortunate stuff for them, because I think the 48 had just as much speed, if not a little, might have been a little quicker than the 86 in, in sheer lap time pace. But then again, we didn't really see the, the, the a straight up fight with Farmbacher and and sellers until the final few moments of the race. So um, interesting stuff all around for, for GTD there. And an important result with the championship in mind for the 86, going back to Meyer Shank Racing, because that car now with the full season drivers takes a 12-point lead over Aaron Tewitz and Jack Hawksworth, as strong as, as that pairing has been over the course of the season, and as strong as the Lexus platform seems to have been interesting that that it's the the MSR team that has maybe on the balance just been a bit more consistent and been able to to egg out just that little bit of a lead. Well, Lexus had a bit of a troublesome race. Um, the number 12 car that Tielitz was in this weekend finished fifth, I believe. But the Hawksworth entry um, had a puncture, uh, had some damage, um, and ended up going behind the wall. And um, as we knew going into the weekend, Aaron and Jack were separate, separated on points. I think there was a three-point gap. And now Aaron has actually surpassed Jack in the point standings. And Aaron is going to be teaming back up with Jack for the rest of the year. So a very interesting dynamic. Um, we kind of predicted this possibility happening with a story, a pre-race story at, on Sportscar 365. And it turned out to be exactly that way. So um, should Aaron and Jack be paired for the rest of the year in the 14 car, as is expected, um, this basically rules Hawksworth out of a, of a chance of the championship because they're not on even points. So, um, yeah, it was a bit of a challenging weekend for for the Ambassador Sullivan Lexus guys. Should also mention that in the LMP2 class, it was PR1 Matheson Motorsports, Simon Trummer, Patrick Kelly, and Scott Huffaker 
teaming to take the win there in a class that, frankly, didn't have the subscription that we were hoping for, but uh, there was more on just why one of the cars there, uh, the Performance Tech car, wasn't there uh, on a story at sportscar365.com. Finally, John, you were there on site. Your impressions in general for over the weekend, especially when you consider the fact that we're going to be back at Michelin Raceway Road Atlanta in the not-so-distant future for the traditional endurance race there with uh, Petit Le Mans coming up not so far in the future. Yeah, some people were coining this the Petit Petit, <laughs> and it didn't really make much sense to me, but whatever. Um, yeah, it, it was a, a real definite learning experience for a lot of these teams, and a lot of cars usually traditionally conduct two, uh, you know, one or two-day tests at Road Atlanta before Petit Le Mans. Now, I think they sort of did away with that and have all this real-life, real-world racing experience after six hours here um, from the the Tire Rack Grand Prix. So um, it just definitely gives a great primer to what we can expect in in, in October. Um, who knows what happens with the BOP? You know, there was a lot of talk going into the week, especially with a, a very late change by the, the, the Cadillac that IMSA made after some petitioning from the manufacturer. Um, they got a 15-kilo weight break. And quite frankly, I think it did even things up a little bit. The Cadillac showed... Um, improved pace um, throughout the weekend and, and just had some bad luck fall their way. But um, yeah, definitely, I think from everybody's perspective, it was a great way um, to sort of prepare for for the next uh, Michelin Endurance Cup race. And and like you said, it's just around, around the corner. Well, with that behind us, we would uh, direct you to the website if you would like more reaction and the full race report from that race, sportscar365.com. And now we bring in Dan Lloyd to discuss what happened at the Nürburgring over the weekend with GT World Challenge Europe, powered by AWS, an endurance round racing there at the Nürburgring. Nürburgring and Dynamic Motorsports teamed up to take the win. Christian Engelhardt, Finn Muller, and Matteo Cairoli. It really seemed like a dominant run, didn't it, Dan? They they appeared pretty much untouchable, although this race also started off with a bit of a chaotic start, not so different from how we started the WeatherTech Championship race a little bit later in the day. It, it did, yeah. There was there was some certainly some parallels there in, in the first lap, um, the first lap action. Uh, yeah, the dynamic really um, got got away with it in that first corner squeeze. Uh, Christian Engelhart started from second on the grid. Um, Porsche claiming the first front row lockout for a manufacturer since Paul Ricard 2016, which I guess shows the sort of variety you see in, in the Endurance Cup. Um, and Engelhart very nearly, um, he was inches away from being caught out by the spinning cars around him with um, Albert Costa in his Emil Frey racing Lamborghini. Diving down the inside, um, he clipped the GPX racing Porsche repulsor to Dennis Olsen. Olsen went around and in turn one at the Nürburgring, that tight hairpin, Chaos ensued, obviously. Um, but then at the same time, you also had um, James Gallardo, who ran deep into the corner in his AF Corsa Ferrari. Um, he went in, touched a handful of cars, including the uh, sister SMP Ferrari. Um, and and that car was eliminated on the spot. The Emil Frey car was out. The GPX car dropped down to the bottom of the order. Um, and Engelhardt got away with it. And, and from there on, the dynamic Porsche just drove away. Um, it was it, interesting. It, it, it was not a, a dominant performance in terms of the times. It never its gap never got above about 32, 33 seconds. That's because we had a few safety cars over the course of the race um, contracting the field. But no, really, the dynamic Porsche didn't put a foot wrong. Um, it only lost the lead once um, in the third hour. 
Engelhardt decided to uh, come back around, drive through the pits to reset his drive time. Um, essentially, when when Engelhardt got in the car, the, the three stints that were left, the drive time didn't amount to the same amount of time that was on the clock for the left of, for the rest of the race. Uh, and so he needed to come around again, eat up a bit of time, um, come through the pits, which cost him about 27 seconds and the lead. Um, but then he that ensured that they had the drive time to get to the finish without any problems and any penalties. And at the same time, Engelhart got past uh, Timur Bogoslavsky immediately at the restart and uh, they went off on their way again. It was a really, really dominant performance. Um, Porsche were very quick and I think that Porsche did lose some potential though with the incidents that happened. Um, it's all started in qualifying on uh, Saturday evening when the 99 Rover racing Porsche had a huge accident coming out of the Michael Schumacher S. Uh, Dirk Werner luckily walking away from it. But that um, that car would have been a real contender um, had it not been withdrawn before the race, bringing the field down to 47 cars. Um, the GPX car that was on pole obviously spun around and that they did recover to 19th, but their race was sort of set from the start. The sister car ran very well in the early stages in the hands of Matt Campbell. He overtook several cars, but then Patrick Pillay had an accident of his own, another fairly big one, um, and that car had to retire. It, so perhaps the result wasn't too representative of the Porsche's pace as a whole, but Dynamics certainly had the package to bring it all together. Um, there were other quick manufacturers. Audi was very quick, I thought, but again, some setbacks over the race. The two WRT cars, each one had a penalty. And I think they could have been real contenders had they not tripped up in earlier points of the race. The 32 in particular, Dries Van Thor, got right behind Sven Muller. He was about a second and a half behind. Uh, but then that car got its penalty and, and the dynamic course was set on its way. So, um, yeah, a mixture of domination, but also some perhaps some missed opportunities for other teams. And uh, But definitely interesting to see what the form was like. Obviously, all eyes now on the total 24 hours of Spa next month, which is the big one for Endurance Cup. No question about that. Uh, behind the battle for the lead, which really wasn't a battle, as we've discussed, there was quite a lot going on. So if you ignored the fact that you had a Porsche kind of sprinting off into the distance, taking full control over the race for the bulk of the running, you had some really fraught moments further back. Uh, Burgoslavsky seemed to be in the middle of it a lot of the time, and there were several others as well. That battle from second on back to seventh or eighth, it seemed like, was raging constantly, especially in the second half of the race. Oh, absolutely. It was, it's just typical of this type of racing. And the beauty of it was you'd have these trains of cars. Um, well, I say trains of cars, but they were all overtaking each other from different manufacturers. And it was just a real pleasure to watch. There were was, there was so many individual episodes of sort of brilliant racing that it's, it's hard to point them out. I'd have to fill another podcast episode, I think. <laughs> Um, but no, it was absolutely brilliant. And you're right, Bogoslavsky was in the thick of it. Dorian Bokalacci had a yeah. real standout drive. He was very impressive in the Santalok racing Audi. They, they ended up getting a, a post-race time penalty for um, an, an incident with the FFF Lamborghini. So that, their result perhaps not representative of the performance there. But um, yeah, it was it was just it was just manic. The Nurburgring is a it's a great track, I think, for this type of racing. The GP layout. It, it doesn't have any. It doesn't have too many obvious overtaking points when you look at it from above. But these GT3 cars always seem to find just sort of bits of time taking time out of each other around the arena section. It was a great place to see moves, and uh, we actually had some spectators in the stands as well. Um, limited access. The Nurburgring sort of trialing trialing this at a few recent events, um, and they obviously got to see the thick of the action because that's sort of where a lot of it was going on. No, it was 
it was absolutely fantastic. And um, yeah, the, it all seemed to be in good spirit. I, I suppose we, we we did have a a couple of knocks, a few penalties here and there, and the the, the number nine K Pax Bentley in particular. Goodness me, they they hit that that looks the sorry state in Park Ferme afterwards. It, it had its its left headlight taken out um, in a clash with the FFF Lamborghini. Andy Suchek though didn't seem to bother him. The performance was still there. He took it home in six. So. Um, that was actually a great performance from the K-Pax crew, uh, their their first points of the season. Um, so yeah, no, it was it was absolutely fantastic. Uh, the racing, brilliant throughout. I thought um, not just in the pro classes for the overall positions, but Silver Cup. It went down to 0.2 seconds on the line after six hours. Garage 59 and Barwell, I think, are going to have a fantastic battle throughout the season. They've taken a victory in a second each in the first two races. It's just a bit of a shame that the season isn't as long as usual because I would have loved to have seen them go through five races of, of these kind of battles. But um, yeah, no, fantastic to see and uh, definitely whets the appetite for Spa, for sure. Why don't you hit on a couple of the other class results? You mentioned that Silver Cup battle. It was awesome, right down to the wire. I think uh, James Paul said it was the longest hour of his of his career or something to that effect. Yeah, he did. Yeah, no, uh, J- James Camp coming in for this race, this was his first uh, I think it was his Endurance Cup debut. Don't quote me on that, but he, he was coming into the lineup for the first time this season alongside Andrew Watson and Valentin Hasclow, who did Imola as a pairing. Um, and yeah, Paul, he, he did a long stint um, in 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 the in the final final stage of the race, or it seemed a long time for him. Um, he, the Barwell Lamborghini behind him um, that had a real storied race. In the end, it came right up to the back of the uh, Aston Martin. At the start, though, Frederick Shandorf started way down in the order i think he was about 17th and he was fourth overall during the opening stint okay he lost a few positions and um, by the time of the pit stops but um that car ended up taking a, an unscheduled stop because it had some sort of uh, engine issue um but it got back through with some of using its short stop strategy in one of the uh, safety car periods that sort of saved it some time and then in the final stint patrick kujula was able to rain it and the gap between himself and uh, Paul but no Paul was very impressive in the Aston I must say and you know those two cars having a real dogfight up front. Congratulations as well to the Pro-Am winners FFF Racing Team and Phil Keane, Hiroshi Hamaguchi and Ilya Earhart uh, the winning driver lineup there. One other thing I wanted to touch on briefly was maybe the strange moment of the weekend we saw Ricardo Feller seemingly weaving back and forth across the track and then exiting his car in what appeared to be a state of delirium. And we did eventually get an explanation for this. Maybe you can describe what happened a little bit better and then take us through what led to it. Yeah, it was very strange, very, very concerning um, to see the car behave that way. And I think a lot of people instantly realized that it wasn't something that had broken mechanically. It, it sort of started at the back end of the lap. Um, fella came through the final corner and, and the car just sort of jinked a bit which which it, it didn't seem very natural and it didn't seem like a mechanical failure and the car that was chasing him on tv at the time swept past um and then fella i must say very expertly brought it along he was he was part way past the pit entry so he had to bring it all the way down the front straight around the first corner hairpin and he found a great place to park it um and and uh, so we we avoided a, a stoppage there a safety car and 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 he got out and you can sort of see he was he was wiping something away from his eyes almost he he, he seemed he seemed quite um, quite shaken up and it, and it later emerged that he was having some gasoline smells in the cockpit um Emil Frey still investigating it so that that's still provisional I suppose 
Um, but it was making Fella very, very dizzy, and he was sort of unable to see almost because because he was struggling so much with whatever sort of um, uh, uh, substances were going around him. Um, I, I, it, it must have been something that happened just then because I, I spoke to Fella not too not too much earlier in the weekend, and he was bright and chirpy as usual. So no, that, that was uh, quite a quite a strange incident. But no, glad glad to see uh, Fella was able to get out of the car, and uh, yeah, hopefully he'll be he'll be in good form to carry on his. Um, uh, eclectic and uh, GT3 program uh, that's that he's got this year. So um, yeah, all, all the best to him there. But uh, yeah, definitely a, a strange one. We haven't seen too much of before. So investigations to come, I think. Finally, the one remaining talking point, I think, from over the weekend was some changes to the pit lane regulations that were implemented before this race. First of all, what were they? And then second of all, did they serve their purpose? Was it uh, the result that people were expecting? People seem to be pretty happy with it. So what happened was uh, at Imola, we had it was sort of a, a, a regulation just for that race, um, and as a direct consequence from the the troubles we've had of, during the coronavirus pandemic, um, not all teams had fuel sensors available to them at Imola. So what SRO did was they implemented a minimum pit time from pit in to pit out. So basically everyone had to be within this certain window and it, and it kind of limited what you could do in pit stops. The only way you could really gain an advantage, well, you couldn't really gain an advantage, but you could throw a lot away, say, if you if you missed your mark. Um, but that was done away with at the Nürburgring. Everyone had the right fuel sensors, the right equipment for measuring um, the timing of, of fuel input. Um, and we had a minimum refueling time of 37 seconds. That meant that without a minimum pit time you could have free reign at the tire changes you, you the teams it was sort of it sort of gave the, the pit crews more opportunity to to battle each other and um i spoke to uh, seb morris before the race and he said it's exactly that you know th- these teams do invest in their pit crews to be the best pit crews out there and they were able to with this change of rules they were able to put them to the test and i cmr the team that uh, morris drives for recruited some ex-WRT guys who are known to be sort of the quickest tyre changes in GT racing. Uh, and so that that gave teams a bit of an opportunity there. And and talking around the paddock, it seemed to be, it, it seemed to be received well. Um, the drivers enjoying it as much as the pit crews. Um, um, we'll sort of see this continue, I think, throughout Endurance Cup. Um, I think the, the refueling time will be a bit different for Spa, but but for sure, it's going to be something that will, that will play a factor in the races uh, along the line. Well, it helped contribute to a fascinating race. I caught the second half of it and was thoroughly entertained. Really good stuff from the Nürburgring over the weekend. Part of a very busy weekend of sports car racing. Should also mention we had Michelin Pilot Challenge racing at Road Atlanta. That was on Sunday. Uh, Rebel Rock Racing won in GS. The driver combination Robin Liddell, Frank Depew, and Andrew Davis while in TCR, Brian Herta Autosport once again picked up the race win. And for the second time in the last three races, it was Gabby Chavez and Ryan Norman teaming for the victory there. We had the 24-hour series racing at Hockenheim, oddly enough, in a 16-hour race. And even more oddly, won by a Porsche Cup car overall. First time that's ever happened in series history. So congratulations to NKPP Racing. Also over the weekend, Lamborghini Super Trofeo, North America, Porsche GT3 Cup Challenge USA by Yokohama, and a whole lot more. You can find race results and reaction up on the website for several of these series, plus in our weekly racing roundup. 
All right, guys, let's go now from what happened over the weekend to the news of the week. We'll start with the provisional schedule for GT World Challenge Europe looking ahead to next year. Amazing. I mean, I suppose this is the right time of the year on the calendar that we should be thinking about next year's calendar, but it seems so far away given the fact that we've just really gotten our season started seemingly in the last couple of months. Great to see, though, that the SRO already has a pretty well-fleshed-out calendar. A couple of TBAs still on there, but a lot to like, I think, when you look at this announcement, and great that they have it fairly well ironed out so early. Yeah, the teams uh, were very happy with, with that because it, it's it's difficult to plan programs now in the current environment. Um, this gives them opportunities. They, they've got they've got dates. They can they can look at things, look at what they can do next year. People were happy with that. So um, yeah, that, that that was great to see. Um, it, a remarkably familiar calendar, really, um, to, to previous years. I mean, starting at Monza and, and visiting all the usual circuits. You've got the Paul Ricard thousand kilometers there, leading into the total twenty four hours of Spa. Um, could be any other endurance cup uh, campaign, really. But um, yeah, sprint as well, looking looking like it has done before. Um, yeah, as, as you say, though, Ryan, we've got some TBAs. Uh, asked Stefan Rattel at the weekend what his thoughts are for those TBAs. We understand the priority, not the priority, but sort of number one uh, choice for the TBA endurance round, which would be round two, is Silverstone. Um, however, concerns about that being able to get all the support series over with the logistical challenges that, that will come under a, a, a no-deal uh, Brexit situation of the United Kingdom leaving the European Union. That, that's certainly been a, a, a big concern of Rattel's for the last year or so. Um, that will determine if that race goes ahead. But as always, Rattel's got plenty of ideas, obviously, for where to hold an endurance race. Um, and interestingly, the Sprint TBA, he's looking at going overseas. Not exactly sure where, but certainly plenty of options on the cards, he says. Um, that would... Uh, that but Rattel stressed that that would require a, the race to, to basically cost as much for the teams as it would to go in Europe. So it might seem quite far-fetched to go somewhere outside of Europe, uh, especially at this time when, when people are trying to tighten the purse strings a bit. But no, if, if they can get transport costs covered and all sorts of things like that, then uh, yeah, no worries. That, that would be the first time in quite a few years since Sprint went uh, outside of Europe. Um, remember those races... Uh, over in Baku, way way before Formula One went there, um, so it's not it's not necessarily a new thing, but certainly would be a bit of a novelty having uh, stayed in Europe for recent seasons. So uh, yeah, no, lots to be interested about there, and we should get more clarification at Spa and uh, over the next few rounds as to what uh, those gaps will be filled with. You can find more information on that and a look at the calendar itself up at uh, sportscar365.com. Right now, we have a story on that subject, just as we do about the upcoming Indianapolis eight-hour entry list. John, we'll go to you for this one. Um, All things considered, it struck me as a pretty positive entry list, given the challenges that we're facing in, in 2020. It doesn't look so dissimilar from what we saw when this race was held out in California at uh, at Laguna Seca. Yeah, there's 22 cars on the on the provisional entry list for the inaugural Indianapolis eight-hour and. I, I guess you're right, Ryan. I guess that you know it isn't as bad as it could be, and and especially considering the circumstances, I'm I'm a little disappointed by the GT3 entry. You know, we were expecting um, perhaps some factory-supported Audis and and Mercedes, and there is one Audi on the entry list still, still TBD, 
Um, hopefully we get some clarity on that soon. Um, we know that Mercedes is unlikely to have any full factory supported entries for Indy or Kailami. So that's a bit of a disappointment there, um, especially there's three AMGs on the entry list, but they're all pro-AMs. Um, we do have KPAX though, which is good news that um, it's retaining the, the points leading um, Bentley lineup of drivers that won the Bathurst 12 hour with M Sport. Um, Bentley had announced uh, a couple months ago that they'd be pulling out of IGTC from the factory um, side of things with M Sport, but um, they've reconfirmed their plans now using customer teams for the rest of the year, with the exception of M Sport, which plans to run um, Kailami. So I think when you pick it apart, yeah, there's some good stories for sure. Um, still waiting on, on some other news to follow. And I think it's also good to see GT4 added to the field. Um, I think, I'm not sure if that was really part of the plan initially or not, but, um, you know, that it's definitely going to help bring up the numbers. And, um, you know, when you think of all the different dynamics this race will have with the first three hours counting towards um, GT World Challenge America points, and and then also those teams earning manufacturer points for intercontinental GT challenge. There's going to be a lot to digest and a lot to figure out when this event happens, but um, most of the major players are there. And, and I think that's good to see, even though we've seen some withdrawals um, from, from the mix. My understanding is that GT4 was being considered uh, at least maybe not from the off, but, but for quite some time, I've talked to team owners that were evaluating it going back several months, so I do think that was kind of on people's radar, even if it hadn't been talked about publicly. Uh, the other good news I think that we received, because like you talked about, the GT World Challenge America points will be paid after three hours, there had been some discussion within the paddock that the World Challenge America teams would not be required to go beyond that three-hour mark, uh, and they could finish their season effectively and then pull off track and that would have left us with a diminished car count for the rest of the race but you got some confirmation John that that's not going to be the case and we do expect all the entrants to to run the entire duration of this race yeah whether that's a requirement um, for the entry or not we don't know but at least based on what we know right now is that it will still only pay points at the three hour mark for um, GT World Challenge teams and if we have to go back and remember this round actually replaces CTMP on the calendar. And I was trying to figure out which race was it. And I'm, now I'm looking at the calendar. And I think it is CTMP where GT World Challenge initially had six rounds on their calendar. Um, they included Indianapolis initially on it, then took it away and replaced it with CODA. Um, this was back pre-pandemic, you know, it was back in November, December. And then when CTMP got canceled, they moved those races those two 90-minute races and basically combine them into three hours for what will be the first three hours of the indianapolis eight hour so a bit confusing a bit complex but i think hopefully we'll get a better idea of how all this works once we once the weekend begins but um like you said ryan yeah we received information that the, the gt world challenge america cars will be required some former uh, somehow or some way to complete the eight hours again i don't know what constitutes that um, just yet? You know, what stops a team from pulling out at the five-hour mark with, quote, mechanical problems? I, I don't know, but um, we'll have to wait and see how it all unfolds. But for sure, some of the teams, um, 
especially with manufacturer affiliations, we're planning to do the full eight hours anyway. I know Racer's Edge was one of them. Um, they're working on a third driver right now alongside Trent Hidman and Shelby Blackstock. So um, that's not to say that, that, that I don't want to make it sound like the, the America teams didn't want to do the eight hours. That's not the case. It's just um, there's a lot of complexities right now going on with the, the, wor- the way the world is, costs, um, manufacturer backing, etc. So um, that's the way it, it, it appears right now, at least. Yeah, interesting stuff. Uh, excited for it. Like I said, all things considered, I think this is a, a pretty good entry list given the challenges, and hopefully it's it's something that, that can be built on moving forward in uh, a year that is a bit more normal, hopefully down the road. And I will say from talking to people within the paddock, uh, it does sound like this is an event that is likely to be back for a second year. It sounds like that has pretty much been decided already, and that is a, a good thing. Obviously, nothing is official until a calendar comes out, but based on the conversations that I've had, I think there's reason to believe this will be given a couple years at least to, to try and establish itself just like we saw out at Laguna Seca, and unfortunately that event never really took hold, and uh, hopefully there there will be a bit more success trying to build this one in Indianapolis moving forward. To another topic of conversation, on the show last week we discussed the implications of the move in schedule for the WEC creating in their finale in Bahrain, creating a conflict with a couple of different championships, and it's put not just drivers, but manufacturers in a bit of a bind. Ferrari, we had a story about just what a conundrum they find themselves in trying to figure out where to allocate their assets and and what to prioritize. Yes, it's it's quite a far-reaching problem for Ferrari because not just in terms of their drivers, but their team as well. I mean, the the A, of course, a crew that that runs in in GT3 and Endurance Cup, there's a lot of crossover between that and the FIA World Endurance Championship GTE Pro program. Um, so th- these two events being on, on the same date creates a real problem. On the driver's perspective, both of the GTE Pro full season pairings are also in Ferrari's essentially factory endurance cup cars. You've got Alessandro Pierguidi and James Collado in one car with current GTE and points leader Nicholas Nielsen. And then you've got Davide Rigon and Miguel Moliner in the SMP car with Sergei Sorokin. And it, it's, it, it's a real, real tough find because Ferrari could end up having to replace five of their six drivers in Endurance Cup. And sure, I'm sure that they went in, when they went into Endurance Cup, as the original calendars stood, they were thinking that they could get a full season in with this sort of factory support. And Ferrari did make quite a big deal about it, about how this was... Um, this was sort of their return to the pro class and really, really trying to um, to elevate uh, elevate that element of their sports program. Um, so it, it is a difficult one. It, it, they said, or I spoke to Alessandro Pierguidi and he said that um, it would sort of depend on if there could be uh, dates moved. I don't think that's going to be possible. Um, just the, looking at the calendar, if you move Paul Ricard, um, if you bring it forward a week that brings it to only two weeks after the 24 hours of spa and it would also clash with gt masters at Oschersleben. um and then there's also the the issue of if you moved it further back further back in the year to a later date it would infringe on the precious um three or four weeks of um, lead-in time to the kyle army nine hour which a lot of the um endurance cup teams will want to be contesting um with with manufacturer backing we hope um so it, it really is a tough spot it could end up being that ferrari i don't know would could they withdraw GT3 cars from an original full season program? That would be 
a real tough call for them for something that they committed to quite extensively at the start of the year. So uh, a, a tough one there. It's not just those guys in the Ferrari camp that are affected. A lot of the GTE AM guys, some of whom will also be fighting for championships, trying to knock Nielsen and, and his co-drivers off their perch. You've got Matteo Cairoli, Matt Campbell, Felipe Fraga, Andrew Watson, Johnny Adam, Thomas Prining. They're all active in, uh, in the WEC and World Challenge Endurance Cup. Uh, World Challenge Europe Endurance Cup as regular regular competitors. So um, yeah, that's certainly a tough one. It's it was un, it was unforeseen. It was a, it was a difficult decision for WEC, obviously, with uh, Formula One moving its dates, as I'm sure you you, you discussed on the Sebring front. Um, so that's definitely going to be something to keep an eye out for. But yeah, no, I think Ferrari's the one that's that's been really affected by this. Yeah, and there's also implications on the IMSA side too, not as severe as GT World Challenge Europe, but you do have a handful of drivers that were planning to contest the 12 hours of Sebring. Now they'll be doing WEC instead, Felipe Albuquerque being one of them. Um, the United Autosports driver was committed with um, wheel and engineering racing. He's no longer um, able to do that. I spoke to team manager Gary Nelson about that from Action Express. He said they have two other drivers that are plan B, but they're two there. He basically put it as plan A was Felipe Albuquerque. Plan one A would have been Mike Conway and Conway can't do it either because of his Toyota commitments. So um, that creates a bit of a challenge there with that team. And also there's a couple other drivers in the GTD ranks, including Ben Keating, who was planning to do the, the full Michelin Endurance Cup um, uh, season with the Riley Motorsports Mercedes. He's going to prioritize WEC that weekend, most likely. So um, it's having this clash is having ripple effects all around the world. And quite frankly, I'm still trying to figure out how we're going to be able to cover it all that weekend with three seasons coming to a close with championships, season finales. Um, yeah, it's it's going to be a challenge. Remarkably complicated times, for sure. Some other topics to discuss. Uh, Vincent Voss, who heads up the WRT team, famous for campaigning their Audis uh, in GT racing as well as DTM here in recent seasons. He's been one that has been vocal about an interest in LMDH when that comes online in the future and had some interesting comments on what that would take from a build-up perspective to make sure that team was prepared to take on an LMDH project, and that would involve running some LMP2 in the years leading up to LMDH coming online. Correct, yeah. So uh, Voss, Voss said that he would require one or two years of LMP2 if he was going to go into LMDH. Um, in, interesting to say that. I suppose not too surprising for a team that hasn't done much in prototypes before. Okay, it had that one race at Spa in 2016, but you know that was that was a while ago now. Um, but certainly, if if LMDH, it means that I guess that if LMDH is coming in in 2022, or as some say, perhaps a bit later, that that could mean a, a WRT foray into prototypes pretty soon if they want to do one or two years in LMP2. Um, and with the uncertainty over DTM, you, you've got a question. You know, where where could where could the team go with things? I know Voss is also keen. Uh, to have GT3 plus cars in DTM. So he's keeping his options open. Um, and also the status of a prototype program would depend on how his ongoing negotiations pan out. I know he's talking to all sorts of manufacturers and, and uh, certainly um, very keen to see what kind of offers they can put together on a program. Um, one thing that WRT does want is a heavy manufacturer focus. Voss says that you can't win without it. Um, he thinks it will be much like what top level GT3 is now. Um, obviously, there's, I guess there's a suggestion that LMDH, you, can, you could have customer LMDH programs, but um, Voss seems to think that it's going to have to be very, very closely aligned with manufacturers 
or certainly teams are going to have to push for that if they want to get anywhere with the class. Um, so I guess it makes you wonder what GT3 might look like as well, because if, if LMDH adopts a sort of similar program in terms of manufacturer involvement to pro-level GT3, what, what kind of dynamic will the cu- manufacturer customer racing departments have all to be decided? But yeah, no, interesting developments. And it's always good to sort of um, hear, hear team bosses of uh, uh, bosses level um, uh, speak out on the subject and sort of give us an idea of what we might see in the next couple of years. It's an interesting story and it's up on the website as we speak. Uh, returning stateside for a couple more topics here, John. Uh, team news in terms of future cars, future programs. Uh, Turner talking about the M4 GT3 moving towards the future. What do you have for us there? Yeah, I spoke to Will Turner about that, and he said that they fully expect to run a pair of M4 GT3s once they become eligible in uh, IMSA competition, and that's right now penciled in for 2022 um there's been a lot of topic of the new generation gt3 refresh the new gen rules um, being delayed a year to 23 and i'm not sure how that would affect bmw as their new car is already out testing Um, we saw some more pictures of it recently and um, bmw motorsports been putting it through the paces and we're expecting that car to um, debut in a race next year doing some test races unhomologated so um, whether it's 22 or 23 the, I guess it's good news to hear that Turner is committed to that new platform. And, um, you know, who knows what the landscape will be in IMSA by then. We could have a, a GT3 Pro class and a GT3 AM um, looking at, at those years. But looking, you know, once that comes around. But um, good to see a, a series stalwart um, sort of commit to that um, so early. And on the GT4 side, I know over the weekend, a Toyota GR Supra GT4 was on site, and we got a bit of news about a team that will be running one of those Supras, at least looking ahead to next year in uh, Michelin Pilot Challenge. Yeah, that's Riley Motorsports. Um, Bill Bill Riley's team is going to campaign one of those cars under the Toyota Gazoo Racing Latin America banner. And that basically is an initiative from um, Toyota Latin America that wanted to race in IMSA. Um, they reached out to TRD, which is in charge of the technical support in North America for anything Toyota or Lexus for that matter too. And um, TRD connected them with Riley. Um, we're still waiting on the driver lineup, but we believe it'll be two drivers um, from Latin America. Um, rumors are Felipe Fraga could potentially be in the mix there, um, obviously having some connections with Riley already, but let, let's wait and see what, what happens there. Um, but uh, Bill, speaking to Bill Riley, he indicated that they would like to have a second car. And um, I spoke to TRD general manager Tyler Gibbs over the weekend as well. And he said they'd ultimately like to see um, three or four cars in IMSA next year in the pilot challenge and also some cars in, in probably GT4 America. Um, that car that was on display over the weekend at Michelin Raceway Road Atlanta will also be on display at, at Indianapolis next month. So um, definitely there's some great interest. Um, the car has shown some good pace in Europe um, in both British GT, French GT, um, VLN. So um, I, I think it, it, things are looking really good for this this new GT4 car, even amid the, the current um, COVID uh, pa- pandemic. That's really good news and great to hear. Well, from the news that has happened to things that we expect coming up this weekend, we have some racing to preview, and we'll do that in a moment. But first, John, we do anticipate some clarity coming from IMSA regarding the class structure looking ahead to 2021 within the WeatherTech Championship as well as maybe some scheduling news. 
Yeah, so a state of the sport address has been scheduled for Wednesday um, afternoon by IMSA, and it typically was called state of the series, and I guess it's been changed to sport, which I don't know if we should read anything into that or not, but um, this is a virtual conference. It was originally supposed to happen last weekend at Road Atlanta, but things got delayed a little bit. I think as IMSA's trying to button thing button up the schedule and also the class structure for next year in the WeatherTech Championship. Um, based on what I'm hearing, no major changes expected to the WeatherTech calendar next year. Um, I think all the same venues, um, dates are more or less the same. So I don't think we're expecting many surprises there, but where we will be expecting some change is in the class structure. And while there's been a lot of talk about what's happening with the GT classes in, 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 the, in the series, our latest intel indicates there probably won't be any changes to that next year. Um, it looks like GTLM will continue as is with the GTE spec cars um, from Corvette and BMW. That's at least what I've heard now. Um, things could change. We're not entirely sure on this, but it appears that that's the case. But instead, there's going to be a fifth category added to the WeatherTech Championship with LMP3 cars. Um, this was something we talked about on SportsCar 365. We had an article up, I think, last week or the week before that IMSA was making considerations for it. And really, there was a, a pretty mixed reaction um, from within the paddock in the prototype um, teams, both in IMSA Prototype Challenge and LMP2 and DPI teams, um, sort of a little leery on adding LMP3 into the main show. Um, it seems like it's happening, so there's really no going back. Um, latest I've heard is that it'll be a six-round championship, much like LMP2 was this year, um, with Daytona, with the Rolex 24 at Daytona being a non-points event, and IMSA Prototype Challenge remaining, but being reduced down to a four-round championship. So they're not getting getting completely rid of um, the, the standalone series with LMP3 cars, yet they're reducing the calendar and sort of encouraging a lot of those teams to maybe step up into prototype, into LMP3 in the WeatherTech Championship. Um, the good news is I know of at least two teams that have already placed orders for new LMP3 cars, the 2020 spec machinery, um, and one program is fully confirmed already for next year. A second one is close to being confirmed. So there is interest, that's for sure. Um, I just don't know how I feel about adding another class and adding another set of prototypes to the main WeatherTech championship. Yeah, me neither. And uh, if this is indeed what is announced as we expect, I'm sure we can have a, a chance to talk about our opinions on it on the show next week. Finally here, though, let's preview what's to come this weekend. And uh, certainly the main focus of attention is going to be GT World Challenge Europe, the Sprint Series, back in action, Dan, and doing so in France. Yes, uh, first visit to Manicor on the cards. Uh, French visits from uh, from the Sprint Series, the Sprint Cup Series, have usually gone to Nagaro. That's probably the most familiar place for, for this championship that people would associate with. But no, Manicor on the bill this time. Um, we had three rounds in the three races in the season opening round at Misano, and we're back to the usual format of two races. Got one on Saturday, which is a night race or a race going into the darkness, uh, and then Sunday we've got a, t a typical daytime affair it should be a fascinating event it was very uh, a very competitive run out of misano with uh, two different teams winning um the ones to beat though dries van Tor and charles Wirtz, who um, have been teaming up in pre in adac gt masters as well as endurance cup as well as sprint cup have been a formidable pairing so far this year um they won twice at misano the first race and the last race they'll be going in with their tails up they got quite a hefty championship lead 
over the fellow Audi crew, Santa Locke Racing's Christopher Hasser and Arthur Rougier. The, the entry list was released on Monday, and you can check it out on Sportscar 365 today. Uh, plenty of cars there, plenty of familiar faces, lots of those who were racing at the Nürburgring, fresh from another GT3 outing. Uh, so, yeah, keep tuned to Sportscar 365 for all the news from this one. Should be a cracking weekend of Sprint Cup action. Looking forward to checking that out over the weekend and all the coverage to come this week up on the website. Thanks to Dan and thanks to John for helping out with their insight here on the show this week. If you have a question or a comment for a future show, you can leave it in the comment section on this uh, podcast page at sportscar365.com or use the hashtag AskDoubleStint on Twitter. And we'd also appreciate a rating and a review on iTunes if you have the time to help us out with that. But with all that said, we'll talk to you next week with our next edition of Double Stint. Double Stint.